It's that time of the month when we begin to feel bloated and crampy and find blood flowing out of our whatevers. That's right, it's time to visit our favorite website, Everyday Feminism, where feminism is transformed from a toxic philosophy that makes people miserable into a toxic philosophy that makes people miserable every single day. Today's post from Everyday Feminism is entitled, How Donald Trump's Election Reveals the Danger of White Male Fragility. And no, I didn't just make that title up to make feminists sound like a bunch of clueless, self-serious shrews who can't see beyond their own narrow worldview because they enshroud everyone who disagrees with them in a fog of pseudo-psychology and moral demonization. That just comes free with the site. The post begins, quote, As the last few weeks of the election dragged on, Donald Trump's campaign became yet another vestige of the white male heteropatriarchy, unquote. Now, let me just pause here. As much as I hate to mansplain the English language, it seems I'm going to have to mansplain until these feminists can girl understand. The word patriarchy means a form of social organization in which the father is the supreme authority. A patriarch is a father. To add the prefix hetero is to suggest that these patriarchs have sex with women. This is a redundancy, since that's almost certainly how they became patriarchs in the first place. More importantly, the word vestige means a mark, trace, or visible evidence of something that is no longer present. But since Donald Trump's campaign was successful, heteropatriarchy must still be in place, so it can't actually leave a vestige. I mean, it's almost as if this writer is so over-emotional that she's lost her ability to reason and has just gone off on some shrill, nagging, hysterical tirade. Oh wait, this is everyday feminism, so of course that's what happened, sorry. Okay. The article goes on to explain that Donald Trump's behavior is systematic of, quote, white male fragility, unquote. White male fragility is defined as when white males become defensive simply because they're being attacked. For instance, let's say some screaming meme of a berserker harridan gets in a man's face and starts shrieking in an intolerable voice that sounds like a cross between a hawk and a monster truck burning rubber, that everything's unfair and white men are oppressing her, even though white men invented everything that makes her life possible, from computers to birth control to air conditioning to razors and deodorant, which on a side note were really good inventions, just saying. And anyway, now this witch wants to put an end to whatever the hell she's complaining about and blah, 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 and finally the white male has just had it with her and says, would you please shut your ever-loving pie hole and stop complaining for one minute and do something useful for someone else once in your life, like maybe make dinner so at least I can start to remember why I let you into my house in the first place. What was I talking about? Eh, never mind, it probably wasn't important. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. We love you, Everyday Feminism. Once a, once a month, they give me the day off, you know? <laughs> I just have to read, read the post from Everyday Feminism. Oh, gosh. All right, the Clavenless weekend looms already. Uh, this this week, this week shot by, and you know it's it's now been it has now been a full week, 
this is the first full week since the election was over. And I have to admit, I'm glad the election is over. I mean, the election was getting, it was a long, long, long election. So I've been trying to assess where we are, like what happened exactly, because the numbers are still just being parsed and there people are figuring it out. I'm trying to assess where we are, what happened, and where we're going. And before I start to rip into the left, which I will be doing, of course, because that's why we're here. <laughs> but before I do, let me just rip into the right for a minute. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking, what, what is it about, since I'm on the right, I was thinking, what is it about the right that makes it hard to see the truth? You know, just like the left is, it has a hard time seeing the truth, because if they saw the truth, they would shatter because they would find out what they are, and then they couldn't bear it. But on the right, you know, I was, you know, those old jokes about how many people does it take to change a light bulb, like they'll be like, my favorite, my two favorites, one is how many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, that's not funny, you know? And then, <laughs> and of course, because I'm a writer, there's one, uh, how many writers does it take to change a light bulb? And it's it's one to hold the light bulb while the world revolves around him. That's always, uh, I've always liked that. But I was thinking that conservatives, if, if the light goes out, say the light bulb goes out in the ceiling, it's like conservatives are like, oh, no, now we're going to have to live in darkness forever. And you go like, well, you know, I'll change the light bulb. No, you won't be able to change the light bulb. But last time it went out, I changed. Yes, but now there are more Mexicans in the country and they won't let you change the light. You know, you go like, well, wait, you know, Mexicans need light, too. Maybe. They, no, it's to the Democrats. So I, I have to <laughs> I have to admit that, I mean, the conservatives are natural pessimists. That's what makes us conservatives in a sense, because we can always say, oh, if you change this, everything's going to fall apart, you know, and, and I, I actually don't believe that. But I do fall prey to this occasionally, and I fell prey to this early on in this election when Donald Trump was nominated. When Donald Trump was nominated, because I had two complaints about Donald Trump. One was his personal character, uh, especially as evidenced in his call for violence against hecklers and things like that, which struck me as being, having a a fascist element to it. But the other was that he's a left winger. He's a Democrat. He believes in solving problems through the government. He talks about, you know, an infrastructure spending and all this stuff. And he's surrounded by people who are Democrats and he's given money to the Clintons and all this stuff. And and when Trump was nominated, I thought, I have lost this election. The things that I believe in are gone. And you know, the fact that a lot of conservative commentators from Sean Hannity to Dennis Prager were jumping on the Trump train made me feel like the thing that I had given the last 10 years of my life to, which was fighting this conservative for this conservative cause of smaller government and more freedom and less spending, was gone. It was over, you know, and I just thought it's, it's completely destroyed and this movement is gone and Breitbart is dead and he's not coming back and that's, that's all there is to it. And that very cons that's very conservative. The light has gone out and we'll never be able to change the light bulb. But now it suddenly occurred to me, and so I, I did my mourning a long time ago. Like other people, other conservatives I know were mourning when Trump got elected were saying like, oh no, now the Trump has taken over the Republican Party. I was way, way past that already. But now it occurs to me, I'm looking at the Democrats, and the Democrats have been decimated, and it never once occurs to me that the Democrats won't come back. You know, I mean, because right, because right? because that's the other side of conservative pessimism is that oh no, they're not gonna, they'll be right there, they're starting right up again, you know, and so and so I thought, well, if they're coming back, then why aren't we coming back? So I just wanted to try, just to start. This is just a beginning to start to assess, you know, what happened and and where are we? And the thing that makes it so hard is the press. I mean, the press, lot the you know our. Our radicals and our crazies tend to be in the comment section 
of like Breitbart and you know the, wherever there's a comments, that's where our crazies are. Their crazies and radicals tend to be in Congress and the White House. And see, that's that is the difference. And the press. And so the press is constantly babbling this radical stuff and saying that we're radicals when we are actually when the right is actually moderates. We're the people who are fighting for the the original values. So yesterday I read this story that really did crack me up from NBC. Trump dodged the press and went out to a steak dinner with his family. And NBC says, this is the least transparent administration in history. They actually said that. And I was cracking up because remember, you know, as I said yesterday, but just to remind you in case you weren't here, uh, the Obama administration has been one of the least transparent administrations in history. They have defied uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. They, remember, they tapped James, James Rosen's phone at Fox. They were listening in on Rosen's phone. They put uh, they put Dinesh D'Souza virtually in jail. They put, he was on parole jail. It was a halfway house. But but look, you know, they, they found a way to accuse him of a minor, minor campaign funding infraction. It was truly minor. They threatened him with, I think it was 15 years in prison, so he copped a plea because that's, what, that's how they get you. you know, they, this is how they always get people to cop pleas. So he copped the plea, and they punished him in ways that they never punish people uh, simply because Dinesh had made this film attacking Obama. It was revenge. And, and probably worst of all was jailing that crazy guy, Nikula Nikula. Was that his name? You know, the guy who made the, the Muslim thing. And in order to in order to hide the fact that Benghazi was a terrorist attack, that the attack on the, uh, um, you know, on the compound in Benghazi was a terrorist attack, and that Obama's claims that he had decimated al-Qaeda and that the terrorism was over and he was winning the war, that the, to hide the fact that those were all lies and it was all untrue, this guy had to go to prison. They sent him to prison, remember? They pressured the, the police until they came and arrested and carried him out. It was really awful. So, so this is... The fact that Trump went to dinner and, the, and ducked the press is just not a story. So the New York Times today doubles down. The New York Times, remember, is a, used to be a newspaper. It, it doubles down, say, on Dinnergate. Dinnergate goes on, the front page, right? To understand how, this is, this is like their front page story, to understand how President-elect Donald Trump's spontaneous meal this week at the 21 Club, the Manhattan night spot, could turn into a flashpoint on the future of American journalism. It's it's best, I swear I'm not making this up, it's best to start with what the news media already knows about its future charge. Since Election Day, Mr. Trump has refused to let reporters accompany him to the White House, accuse the media of inciting protests. Oh, why would he ever say that? I can't imagine. And tweeted accusations that the New York Times fabricated stories about his transition, interrupting us while we were fabricating stories about his transition. Okay, I did make that part up. As a candidate, he vilified journalists by name and blacklisted news outlets that displeased him. One of the reasons he was elected, because we hate you so much, you know, <laughs> just like we love to see him do that. So when Mr. Trump ducked out to dinner Tuesday night without informing the journalists assigned to cover him, it struck White House reporters as a small but significant omen that cordial relationships between the president and his press corps, a hallmark of the West Wing, were under threat. This is dinner, right? This is Trump goes to dinner. So the Media Research Center, God bless them, right, come, went back and found that in 2008, after Obama was elected, he went on vacation to Hawaii, he ducked the press and took his kids out to a water park. New York Times. Here's the New York Times from Obama ducking the press and taking his kids to a water park. In the news-free zone that is Barack Obama's pre-inauguration Hawaiian vacation, this passes for a bulletin. 
the president-elect ditched his press pool of media minders to take his daughters to a water park on Friday. In making his dash, with his Secret Service security detail to be sure, Mr. Obama drew attention both to the seemingly odd but important rituals of the presidential and pre-presidential bubble and to just how much this very private public man chafes under its constraints. He did it again in 2010, by the way. He took his, he ducked the press. So now he's president, right? He ducks the press and he took his kids to his, he went to his kids' soccer game. I'm sure you all remember that because of the headlines and the multiple story. Yeah, it's, I, I don't remember it even. So the point of the press is to support the Dems and to stir up hysteria. And remember, they did this with George W. Bush and they couldn't touch Bush because Bush was too clean until the Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. And then the, it was like hate speech. Reading the New York Times on Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans, a city that had been governed by Democrats for 100 years, and for 100 years, Democrats had funneled federal funds that were supposed to bolster the levees and had funneled them into their own pockets so that when the hurricane hit, the levees broke because of Democrats. And this was all George W. Bush's fault because George W. Bush sat in the Oval Office going like this. <laughs> until it developed into a hurricane and blew New Orleans away. That's the, how the weather works. So, you know, these guys are just doing everything they can to make this transition period in which there has been virtually no news, there has been vir no political news, to make this into an, uh, you know, a uh, cause for hysteria. We have to all be hysteria, and they're ginning this up, and it's going to have an effect down the line, right? When there's a crisis, when Trump says something wrong, when he does something wrong, then we're going to have the sense that, like we had with George W. Bush, that all this stuff has been going on all this time. In the same way, we have the sense that the Obama administration has been scandal-free because they didn't cover Fast and Furious, because they didn't cover the IRS, they didn't cover the politicization of the Justice Department, so everything's been great. Great, you know, Obama is looking around around him. He's making speeches like, you know, I, yes, let's play the speech that cut from Obama in, I guess he's in Greece, and somebody asked him, did he realize there was anger in the electorate? Here's his response. Did, did I, I recognize, recognize that there, there was, was anger or frustration, frustration uh, in, in the American, American population? population? Of, of course, course I did. Globalization, Globalization combined, combined with, with technology, combined with social media and, and, and constant information uh, have disrupted people's lives, sometimes in very concrete ways, but also psychologically. There is no doubt that that has produced uh, populist movements, both from the left and the right, in many countries uh, in Europe. When you see a Donald Trump and a Bernie Sanders very unconventional candidates have considerable success, uh, then uh, obviously there's something there that's being tapped into. Uh, a suspicion of globalization, a desire to rein in its excesses. Time will now tell whether the prescriptions are being offered, whether Brexit or uh, with respect to the US election, ends up actually satisfying those people who've been fearful or angry or concerned. So, so that, that sound, by the way, was him. He was standing in a big uh, vaulted space and it was echoing off. That wasn't our sound. Hey, you know, before I unpack this, I've got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. You should come over to The Daily Wire and keep listening. And while you're there, while you're there, you know, we have this new thing where you can turn off the ads. Is it free? 
for a certain amount of time, you can turn off the ads, and I think all they want is your email address. You should try that and try subscribing because then you get the entire feed right there on the site for for your lousy eight bucks and all kinds of good things. You get Ben, you get every, you get me, you get the whole site uh, ad free, and it's great. So come on over and listen to the rest of the show on the Daily Wire. So the only reason I played that Obama cut is just to, to remind us of the way this guy talks about the anger and division in the country as if he had nothing to do with it. It's like he's, he's, he's just landed on this planet, you know, he just landed, and it was like, why is everybody yelling? Why is everybody so angry? You know, why is everybody so angry? And when I said this, I said this a couple of days ago, and people left comments, no, he's being, he's bringing us all together. He's, you know, just, just please, please remember, this is the guy who jammed Obamacare down the nation's throat. The nation never wanted this thing, jammed it down his throat without a single Republican vote, not one. This is the guy who told John McCain basically to shut up because I won the election, who said, we won, get over it. This is this is that guy. This is the guy who called us terrorists because we didn't back his Iran deal. He's been, and, and especially the stuff he has done in black neighborhoods, ginning up anger against the police, where all the statistics show the police do not uh, shoot people on a racist basis at all, but he gins up this anger and he says, well, people feel this way. They feel this Well, they feel this way because you're doing it and this anger is from you because you never listened to anybody because you always knew better than everybody. And just to drive this home, here is, there's been this thing in the, in the Trump transition team in that uh, Trump's son-in-law, Jason Kushner, got rid of Chris Christie's people from the transition team. And there's some sense that this may be payback for the fact that Chris Christie, when he was a federal prosecutor, prosecuted and put in jail Kushner's father, who, by the way, huge Democrat donor. That was why it was a big deal for Christie, because it made him a Republican star, and he put him in prison for tax evasion and witness tampering, I think it was. And so there's some sense that Kushner may have gotten back and just said, we don't want you people on. We've, I've never liked Chris Christie. We don't know that for sure, but there's, that's the narrative that the press is building. Here's David Ignatius, a Washington Post columnist, discussing this. I think there is a kind of a night of the long knives uh, quality uh, as this uh, Trump team sorts out who's going to be on top, who's going to have the... the just, just stop it. Night of the Long Knives. I mean, I'm sure you all know Night of the Long Knives is when Hitler killed his personal, the, the, the people in the, the SA, which was the rival of the SS, because he felt that he wanted the SS was more loyal to him. And so he, one night, he had a lot of people wiped out, at least from between 80 and hundreds of people wiped out uh, to secure his power. So this is the Night of the Long Knives. I would, I would like to suggest, I'm, I'm very much against federal laws, but a federal law preventing colonists from using world War II analogies would, would go down really a treat. So this is the one thing. It's they use that kind of language to gin up, and the language about Trump going to dinner, to gin up hysteria. So we approach this entire, whether we're on the right or the left, we approach this entire thing as, as a battle between these two pitched sides. And the thing that this does that is so wicked, it's so wrong, is that it pits Americans against each other in areas where we could agree. Because we never have in the press, we never have conversations about, say, the, the environment. 
a conversation about the environment. How would a conversation about the environment go? I mean, you know, with Jay Hay and I, our producer, we were just talking about the fact that it used to be more polluted in L.A. It used to be so polluted you couldn't see the mountains half the time. There was this green yuck. I remember coming here from London, visiting from London, and you couldn't breathe. It was awful. And now it's really clear why the catalytic converter. You know, they said this is getting ridiculous. In the same way they stopped burning coal in London, the London fog disappeared. The fam famous L.A. smog disappeared when they invented the catalytic converter. Everybody wants clean air. Everybody wants clean water. That what the left always does is it takes, the far left always does is it takes these kernels of decency, kernels of real things that we are all interested in, and the environment is a good example, and turns them, gins them up to hysteria because a, a crisis can't go to waste, and in a crisis people will let the government have more power, and so it's global warming, we're all going to die. You know, we go from how can we clean up L.A. to it's global warming, we're all going to die unless the government gets to tax every oil thing and stop every pipeline and not use cars and not, you know, and, and everything is wrong. We're going to protest every single thing. So we're dealing with hysteria on the left, and that makes news because part, partly because it's entertaining, but partly because the press is on the left and doesn't understand that people on the right are very much conservation-minded because a lot of people on the right run businesses that depend on conservation, and nobody wants to sell cars to people that people don't want if people feel that they're polluting their own uh, nest, you know, they're not going to want. So we have, you know, political correctness, the same thing. Everybody wants to be polite. Every decent person wants to be tolerant. We all want to include everybody in the, in the great American journey. That doesn't mean that you get to pick on white people. Sorry, wrong. It doesn't happen. It doesn't mean you get to pick on men. If women feel put upon, guess what? A lot of men feel put upon by women. You know, I mean, I've been hearing this from women, from decent, nice women who are saying, oh, Donald, how could you go for Donald Trump, a man who every woman knows what it's like to do? Well, guess what? Every man knows what it's like to be taken for a ride by a woman who just wants your money. You know, we, we know about that stuff. Life between men and women can be difficult when you're dealing with people who aren't very nice. Tough, tough, you know, this is the thing. You know, we're not enemies. We are not enemies, but friends. And the press, the media, the reason I pick on them so much is because I think they get between us. I really do believe that 70% of the people agree on 70% of the issues, and we can get to the other 30%. That's why, that's why when you talk about cultural issues, the left immediately goes to abortion because there's no way to compromise on abortion. You know, there's no way to say, yeah, we'll only kill the baby a little bit. You know, it's like, you know, you can't do that. So, okay, that's a divisive issue. I get it. But still, there's so many things that we agree on, and they are keeping us from knowing ourselves. And, and even worse, even worse, now that they feel put upon, now that they feel it could, because remember, this election was not just Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the least of it because he is kind of a Democrat. He is going to do a lot of left-wing things, and I'll get to that in a minute. It's, it's not that. It's that they've been wiped out everywhere. The Democrats have been wiped out in the governorships of the state legislatures in both houses of Congress. This was their big chance. You know, next, next time, it's all their guys who are up in the Senate. They're like 25 seats, I think, up in the Senate. It's all the uh, Democrats who are up. So they're going to have a very hard time uh, increasing their minority to a majority. You know, this was their big chance to get ahead, and they blew it. And so they're really on... So the other thing is happening is this move toward censorship, and we've seen it all week with Ben. I mean, I, I admire Shapiro for what he's doing. He reminds me, he's beginning to remind me of the little guy who stood in front of the tanks at Tiananmen Square. You know, I mean, there's Shapiro who must be, I, I don't know, he must be like 5'9", standing up against like 30 security guards, you know, yeah, we're going to arrest you if you step onto campus with an opinion. Yeah, that opinion, that's a dangerous opinion. We got to stop assault opinions. You know, it's one thing to have normal opinions, but if you have assault opinions, you can't, you know, he was, where was he yesterday? The U of uh, Wisconsin, was it? 
Is it, I, you know, they're screaming at him, they're yelling at him and all this stuff. I mean, it's just absurd. Only why? Because he is putting forward a point of view that they don't want people to hear because it's appealing and it makes sense and it works. That's why. So now, even worse, is this thing that is happening on Google where they're talking about the dangers of fake news. And you know what that means, right? Fake news. This, this is fake news, basically, you know, because, because you know, when, when the late night show on NBC and the late night show on CBS make fun of right wingers, that's just comedy. When one comedy central host after another, Samantha B, says, F Donald Trump, you know, which passes for comedy on the left, you know, that's just comedy. If I come on and make a joke, about the right, about the the left. When I start teasing the left, that's hate speech. That is hate. How could you possibly? How could you possibly make jokes about these nice, lovely people? So, over the last week, two of the world's biggest internet companies have faced mounting criticism over how fake news on their sites may have influenced the presidential election's outcome. You think this would be happening if Clinton had won? You know. On Monday, those companies responded by making it clear that they would not tolerate such misinformation by taking pointed aim at fake news sites' revenue sources. This is, remember, this is the thing that the left always does, this language thing, fake news. This is their new thing. That just, all it means is right-wing opinion. That's all it means. They want their opinion to go as news and our opinion to become fake news, okay? That's it. Google kicked off the action on Monday afternoon when the Silicon Valley search giant said it would ban websites that peddle fake news from using its online advertising service so they won't let us make money. Hours later, Facebook, the social network, updated the language in its Facebook audience network policy, which already says it will not display ads in sites that show misleading or illegal content to include fake news sites. And, and now there's a woman, uh, Melissa Zimdar, is an assistant professor of communication. What the hell is an assistant professor of communication? That's like a nobody at Mary Mack College in Massachusetts. Put together a publicly available Google Doc. This is a, a big story in the LA Times. Cataloging false, misleading, clickbaity, and satirical news sources. Guess who's on it? Hey, we made we made the Merrimack College in Massachusetts assistant professor of communications list. You know, and when you've made the assistant professor of communications list at Merrimack College in Massachusetts, you have landed. You know, here is an interesting story that was on NPR of all places about how Facebook determines what is, is wrong. Because remember, one of the political actions to shut us up is to complain about us. Oh, there's been hate speech on Facebook. You've got to turn it down. So listen to just a minute of this report from NPR. It's a really good report about how this happens. Facebook's head of global policy, a woman named Monica Bickert, said that any time a post is flagged, her staff comes together and puts a lot of thought into the decisions about what stays up and what comes down, that they deeply consider the context of each post. She used that word over and over again to suggest we are really thoughtful and we stand by our decisions. So it sounds pretty good, but what did you find about what they actually do? The truth is, Facebook actually has an entire army of subcontractors out in Warsaw and uh, in Manila, the Philippines. And because of privacy laws as well as technical glitches, these subcontractors can't even see the entire post that they're looking at. And they're pressured to work at an extremely fast rate, about one post every 10 seconds. So the people who are supposed to be figuring this out and monitoring hate speech and other kinds of offensive speech have to decide in 10 seconds based on hardly any information. 
they have to decide quickly and they are in a work environment that encourages them to go at lightning speed. And, and who knows how good their English is, too. Seriously, I mean, you know, you've talked to these people in foreign countries when you have to call up to fix your computer and stuff like that, and it's very hard to communicate. You know, <laughs> basically, the answer to bad speech always is more speech. The answer to bad speech is good speech. Let the people choose. And also, right-wingers should not be sanguine about this. They should not be, you know, they should set up sites that can get around this stuff so that we can always say to people, oh, YouTube is, is restricting Dennis Prager? Well, come on over to our site and take a look. It's still available, and it's available to everybody. So, it make, all this stuff is based on making it hard for us to know one another, for making it hard for us to say, to sit down at Thanksgiving. The, re, the reason I said yesterday you shouldn't argue about people is because people do bad things. You should argue about principles if you want to argue politics. When you sit down at Thanksgiving, you know, and you say, oh, yeah, I, I voted for Donald Trump, and, you know, your uncle has to be pulled down off the ceiling, this is why. This is why they teach us to hate one another. The media, which is left-wing, teaches us to hate one another. When you look at the polls, and I haven't really had a chance to parse the uh, exit polls and the, and the election polls, but what people are saying now is that basically people hated Clinton more than they liked Trump. And Karl Rove is in the Wall Street Journal, a veteran poll reader, though not always a good predictor of things, but he said... The electorate seems to have been motivated by concrete concerns about the current economy. Well, of course it was. Of course it was. This economy sucks. This economy sucks, and the press has been telling us how great it is. The, the press has been basically, you know, well, like I, I, a crass phrase comes to mind, but they've been telling us it's raining when something else is going on. You know, they, they've been telling us things are great when everybody knows, everybody sits at their kitchen table and knows that, Obama has failed on the economy because Obama doesn't know anything about the economy. He never has, and he never listens to people. So it's the economy. So that means that going forward, and this is really important because this drives conservatives crazy too, going forward, the guy who makes the economy works is going to win, okay? Two, people care about two things. They care about money and meaning. And when I say money, I don't mean in the greedy, terrible sense. I mean, I want my kid to have good things. I want him to go to good schools. I want him to have enough to eat. That's what they care about. They care about taking care of their families. And they care about meaning. They care that their life is not just, you know, a battle, the, the survival of the fittest. We're all doing something together. When the economy works, that's the time when the guy in charge can sell meaning. And when you have a guy like Donald Trump, who's not an ideological guy really at all, it's going to be hard to do that. And so that is the conservative role. The conservative role is going to be pushing conservative policies and showing people that these are the things that work. Because unfortunately, or fortunately, whether conservative policies are right or wrong, whether conservative principles are right or wrong, the policies have to work. This is one of the reasons I'm a Paul Ryan fan. Everybody hates Paul Ryan because he doesn't show up at certain ideological moments because he wasn't tough enough on Obama. He didn't, you know, and he really, it's really kind of unfair. He kind of came in after Boehner had been such a, a doofus about it. But Ryan comes in. The reason I like him is that he has conservative policies to sell his principles with. And that is what is going to have to happen. And hopefully Trump and previous are going to listen to Ryan a little bit because he has some really good plans to fix the economy. The voices we should not be listening to are voices like this. Keith Olbermann has been brought back to life by a weird process at GQ uh, where they flood, they flooded his, he was already brain dead, but they flooded his uh, brain with electricity and brought him back to life. And he's still brain dead, but now he's animated. Here's what he's talking about. Give him a chance, what? 
in the hope that he will someday grow up enough to be able to see over the top of the Oval Office desk, we do not have time for the White House edition of Celebrity Apprentice starring President-elect Pussy Grabber. Give him a chance, because we're all supposed to pretend that this is a normal man and that was a normal election. Because we're all supposed to forget that the Russians interfered with the election and the involvement of the FBI at minimum affected the outcome. Because we're all going to follow the Washington Post and call them populists instead of white supremacists, even though they are white supremacists. Give him a chance. All we are saying is give fascism a chance. Who knows? It might not be as bad as we think. It might not be a bottomless pit. This is not my president, and judging by the margin by which Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, at this rate it will be larger than Kennedy over Nixon in 1960, this is not America's president either. So fortunately, when the electricity blew out, he just keeled over because obviously he's not really with us. Uh, you know, this is a good reason why you should vote, by the way, even when you live in a state like California, so that guys can't talk about the popular vote because it is something we should win. So instead of listening to voices like that, I would like to, we always like to end with a little music. We like to end the, the week with a little music. Here's my final message to our friends in the left-wing press, beginning with Keith Olbermann. This comes from the 1967 musical film How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, starring Robert Morse. There is a brotherhood of man, a benevolent brotherhood of man, a noble tie that binds all human hearts and minds into one brotherhood of man. You're a lifelong membership is free. Keep a giving each brother all you can. Oh, aren't you proud to be in that fraternity, the great big brotherhood of man? Oh, that noble feeling, peace, heart fills our feeling, down with double dealing. Andrew Clavin. This is the Andrew Clavin Show. Have the best Clavenless weekend it is humanly possible to have, and we will see you on Monday.